Heavenly Father, oh, what great trial and tribulation we, your fallen race, had. No longer sons of God because of the fall, no longer in good standing before you, we were alienated from the family of God cast out because of our sin, wandering, orphaned, helpless and hopeless. And yet, Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, you sent one who is the true Son of Man, that he might be our elder brother, our true kindred, that he might adopt us, as his own, and so make you again our Father. Oh Lord, this morning I pray that you would help us to see what a splendorous, wondrous, awesome thing it is that the Son of God took to himself a true body and soul, becoming the fullness of a human that he may love and serve and adopt us into your family. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Um, Many of you might be aware that this is the season that the church has historically looked to, the personhood of Christ. If you think about Easter, we we usually talk about the work of Christ quite a bit, Um, his living and dying for us. Christmas is that time when the church tends to look to who Christ is. What does it mean that there was a babe born in a manger? So uh, for this Christmas season, um, the pastors are going to be preaching four sermons, one for each Sunday in the month of December, dealing with a different aspect of who Christ is, so that we can more fully appreciate our Savior in all that he is for us. Now, many of us have kind of a sentimental attachment to Christmas. Um, We have memories of uh, Christmas decorations and family meals or traditions, maybe time spent together. Maybe many of you are looking forward to, to being with Um, brothers and sisters or aunts or uncles or your parents or your children and and we have these warm sentimental thoughts about Christmas and some of us even have um, these uh, deep warm feelings when we think about um, the birth of Christ maybe the first chapters of Matthew or the 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 tradition you might have of putting up a nativity or um, something of that sort, that, that image of a plump little chunky babe in, in a manger out in a barn with a bunch of um, angels singing on high. Um, and yet, um, so often I think our sentimentality and our, and our ooey-gooeyness about Christmas can lead us to fail to see the the fullness of who Christ is. Family and food and and warm feelings, they all have a place in the Christian life, but if we're not careful, they they can distract us from thinking of Christ as He is fully human. And it's easy to see why that might be when you read the the introduction in in Matthew and you you see what's happening in the field with angels um, over the shepherds in this this, this star that's guiding a wise man. And there's all these supernatural things that are going on. We can think of Jesus as, as something other than plain and ordinarily human. We can make the, the whole thing very spiritual, very ethereal, to the point that we forget that Jesus came into the world just like every other human creature has. We forget that he lived a full and human life. So as we approach Christmas, 
this Sunday, I'm hoping that we can take a more holistic look at our Savior so that we can, we can better adore Him this Christmas, that we can better live under His rule. We can better find that Jesus really is everything that our hearts and our lives really need. Unlike all what the world is shouting at us right now, to be satisfied in lights and food and gifts. So my goal this morning is not primarily to give you an action plan to take away to make your life and your Christmas better. Most of you know that it's not how I preach, and that's not what you would normally expect from me. But even this morning, you're not going to hear much of God's law. As much as I love God's law, I'm not, I'm not going to come confront you with the Ten Commandments and try to drive a whole bunch of sin out of your heart. What I, what I want more than anything else this morning is to paint a picture, a full picture of your Savior who came to, to, to us, to live among us, to know us, to love us. I want, I want you to walk away with your hearts just thrilled with all that Christ is, that you would long to love Him and worship Him more. That doesn't seem overly productive. It doesn't seem effectual. It doesn't seem to do much. And yet, brothers and sisters, I promise you, if, if, we, learn, if we learn to see Christ as He is, if we learn to, to have our hearts set on Him, that's really what the fear of the Lord is, then you know what? I promise you, I promise you, your life will be far better, far richer, far fuller than you could ever hope. And so this morning, I'm going to even preach slightly different than I normally would. I normally try to work through a text and painstakingly take each verse apart and put it back together and, and do all that. And so we're going to kind of be all over a little bit this morning. And we're going to do that in, in two points. This is, this is what we're going to look at. The first point of the sermon is the son who is our kindred. The, the son who is our kindred. And my, and my desire is, is to show you that it's good and right and necessary that we see Christ as human. So the son who is our kindred. And then the second point is the son who is our older brother. The son who is our older brother. And I, and I hope there to kind of draw out Christ's humanity in such a way that you'll see that it's actually very helpful, very necessary, very good to dwell on Christ's humanity. So let's then start with the son who is our kindred. If you read any church history, and I know church history can tend to be very boring and dull and you might not enjoy it the way I do, but if you read, if you read any um, good church history, you're going to find that very early on, there were controversies over who exactly Christ was. Some wanted to describe Christ as only being divine, only being God. There was a very well-known heresy, and I don't use that word lightly, Heresy is whenever we deny something of the person and work of Christ. But there was a very well-known heresy called docetism. It comes from the Greek word dekecho, which means to, to pretend or to, to appear, but not to really be. And so there were, there were those running around in the early church, you even see it in 1 John, who would say, yeah, God came to us, but he only appeared to be a man. There were others who, who saw Jesus as a divine creature, he wasn't quite God. He was just a little bit lower, higher than the angels. They called him an eon or, 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 or an eminence of God. Uh, but he wasn't really fully man either. And, and that's where we get Arianism. You might have heard of that before. But the early church, having to deal with all these unbiblical views of Christ, came together and, and tried to give language, tried to give a description of who Christ was and is and will always be. And here's... Here's what the Orthodox confess. And by Orthodox, I mean all true believers. We all unite in teaching that we should confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. This same one is perfect in divinity, and the same one is perfect in humanity. The same one is true God and true man. 
comprising a rational soul and a body. He is of the same essence as the Father according to His deity. And the same one is of the same essence with us according to His humanity, like us in all things except sin. You see, the earliest disciples, in fact, I would say even before the disciples, the Scriptures themselves told us of the Old Testament that there was going to be one who would be a Redeemer, who was both God and man. Not a mixture. Not like half God, half man. No, he would be fully God, fully man. And not confused like his Godhood and his manhood would kind of mix and he'd be something else. No, he is fully, truly God and at the same time, truly and fully man. That's a mystery. Can't wrap our heads around it, but it's so necessary. And it's good that we have these confessions and creeds. I love them. Our our own confession, the 1689, is very affirming of this because it's drawing on the same language of the Chalcedonian definition. That's what I I read for us. But let's show it from Scripture, shouldn't we? Shouldn't we be able to put this before you? And so how can we show from the Scriptures that he is truly man? Or, Or another way of saying is, how does the Scriptures tell us that he had a human body and a human soul and and a real entire human existence. Brothers and sisters, this is important because this affects how we view Christ and how we relate to him. If he's not truly man, then you know what? That's great that he's God, but God is completely unlike us. How can we relate to that? But, But if he's truly man, then perhaps we have a brother who knows what it is to, to suffer and have sorrow and sadness, who knows our very hearts and so can stand before his Father for us. Well, well let's look at some proofs from the Scriptures for this doctrine that, that, that Christ is fully human. I'm not going to prove divinity. That will be next week. That's, we'll look at him being truly God. But this week we're going to look at him as being truly man. Well, the first proof is that the Scriptures regularly declares him to be human in every way. We can start with our own text this morning from Hebrews chapter 2. If you look at verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. The Scripture is teaching that because there were going to be children of God, because God desired to have human beings belong to him in relationship with him, that Christ would have to come and share in two things, flesh and blood. Now flesh means our physical bodies. And then blood, blood for all over the scriptures represents our life. So he had to come, have a human body and a human life. Hebrews 2, 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's the same thing the Chalcedonian definition pulls on. In every way that's essential to be human, he had to be human. Now we'll talk about in a moment that there are some things that we commonly experience that aren't part of being human, that aren't necessary for being human. But Christ, in every way that is human, had to take on humanity. Maybe there's no clearer way to say it than John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Truly, the Son of God took to himself a humanity. Another evidence. All over the Scriptures, he has titles of a being a human being. For example, one of the most precious Verses, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. What's it say? The man, Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't deny his divinity at all. We'll talk about that next week. But it's a clear assertion that Christ was man. Fully human. He's called the Son of Mary. I find this one so fascinating, so helpful. Jesus is doing miracles. He's going along and he comes back to his hometown of Nazareth. And he's proclaiming things. He's giving the gospel. He's pointing it. He's saying, I am that one. And what what do the Jews say? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Hoseas, and and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? You know what what they're saying is, here, Jesus, you're making a claim to be God, to be divine, to be the son of God. 
but we've known you since you were a little kid. You have a human family. You're a man. That's what they're asserting. You're the son of Mary. Flesh like we are. Over 80 times in the Bible, he's referred to as the son of man, which is really of saying way he's the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. He is human. How about another proof? Well, you might not think of this, but he looked like a regular Jewish guy. Isaiah 53.2, we heard read, Robert read it for us this morning. For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. What, what, the, what the prophet is saying is, if you walked down the street of Nazareth and saw Christ, you wouldn't have thought anything special of him. God didn't like endue him with like some great beauty and, and human glory that everyone would go, oh, that, that's the Messiah. Clearly, that's him right there. Hey, he was a plain Joe. If you walked across the street and he walked on the other side, you wouldn't even told the difference between him and any other person. John 4, 9, the Samaritan at the, at the well, the woman is sitting there and she's talking to him. And you know what she says? The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's sitting there and he has all the telltale signs of just being a regular Jewish guy. The tone of his skin, the way he spoke, the way he dressed. When she looked at him, you know what she saw? Human, male, Jew. What about some some more? Maybe these will start hitting closer to home. You realize that in his humanity, I'm being very careful, in his humanity, he had limited knowledge. Limited knowledge. Mark 11, 13, Jesus is going along. He sees afar a fig tree, green in leaf. And you know what he expects? To find figs. He says as much. When he gets there, what's there? No figs. He didn't know that there was no figs on the tree. Does that mean it was sin? No. He just had limited knowledge. He expected one thing. That's not what he got. Mark 13, 32. A text that so often is thrown in the faces of Christians to say that Jesus isn't God. We'll deal with that next week. But here's Jesus talking about the end times and, and when he's going to return again. And his disciples turn to him and say, when will these things be? And Jesus answered his No one but the Father knows, not even the Son or the angels in heaven. Huh? Well, it's because in his humanity, Jesus didn't know. Unless the Father told him, he wouldn't know. And the Father didn't tell him, so he didn't know. He was limited in his knowledge. He had bodily limitations. I mean, I'm not trying to be crass, but he had a regular human existence just like you and I did. He got tired John 4, 6, you know why he's sitting at the well? Other than God wants him to talk to the Samaritan woman, the father wants him to talk to him. It's because he was tired. The the sun had made him weary. He's sitting next to a place where he can get water. He was often hungry. Matthew 22, 18, that's why he went to the fig tree. He was hungry. He wanted breakfast. We find him sleeping on the boat when it's rocking at sea. We find him thirsty. We find him You realize Jesus didn't like zap around Israel all the time. He wasn't like snapping his fingers and appearing in every city. He had to walk. He had the same limitations you and I do. And here's something else. And I, I don't want this to be controversial at all, but I think it's a very strong proof that Jesus, yes, he is God, but he's fully human. You realize Jesus underwent things that God could not. I mean, this proves that his humanity is creatureliness. Let me give you an example, an, an easy one to start with, and, and, and you, I think you'll fully agree and then see where I'm going. You realize that Jesus grew and developed? When, when, when he's young and his parents take him to Jerusalem, he's at the temple, and you know what he does? He sits down and he asks the teachers questions about God. And he learns. He learns about his Father in heaven. 
he, he has to read the scriptures. He has to do all of these things. In fact, this is what the, what the this holy scriptures speak of him after this whole incident of being a temple. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. I hope you and I don't think that God somehow gets stronger or grows weaker or has to learn or become wise. God is always full wisdom, always has the fullness of strength that never diminishes and never changes. But in his humanity, Jesus had to grow. Hebrews 5.8 Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. You see, Jesus had something he, he lacked. It wasn't sinful. He never failed, don't get me wrong. But as he lived life, he had to learn what it was to obey God. He never chose disobedience. Please don't hear me. But, but what I mean by that is, just like Abraham had to show his faith, By offering up Isaac, God says, now I know. God always knew. But he says, now I know that you you believe. Abraham had to justify his faith. It had to come out to its fullness, its maturity. So Christ, too, had to show the maturity of obedience that was coming. He had to learn it. He had to demonstrate it. He He had to undergo suffering. In fact, that's one more thing that proves that he's man. Because God never suffers. God is the fullness of joy. And that never changes or diminishes. God is immutable. He doesn't change, brothers and sisters. He doesn't suffer. But in order to enter into suffering with us, he becomes man that he also can suffer. And finally, he was tempted. I hope, I hope when you read Hebrews 4.15, you see that he's tempted in every way. You can then turn to James 1.13 and go, God cannot be tempted by evil. He's never tempted. So what's going on with Jesus? He's human. Fully human. The fact that he's able to be tempted, even though he never failed, although he never sinned, the temptation itself wasn't sinful, but the fact that he could be tempted proves that he is man. Last evidence. He had and continues to have a physical body. I I don't, he didn't have one for all eternity. But from the moment he was conceived, even now, he has a physical body. And brothers and sisters, this is, this is I, I want to make this really clear. This is, this, is, this is necessary. This is helpful for us. Because if Christ ever stopped being human, he couldn't be all that he is for us. Even now, he is in heaven with a human body and a full human soul. This is what it says. Luke 24, 39. When, when Jesus is resurrected from the grave, what does he do when Thomas shows up? Doubting Thomas. He holds up his body and says, touch. See the wounds. Put your hands in them. I'm not a spirit. This is my physical body. He even eats fish to prove that he really has a human body still. Acts 7, 55-56. Stephen, when he's being stoned, the heavens are open to him. And he says, what? I see the Son of Man seated on a throne. He sees Christ bodily there. Perhaps maybe this is the, the most compelling, the most hopeful evidence of him having a physical body even now. Philippians 3.20 But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Present tense, his currently glorious body. Jesus has a glorified body, still fully human in all its fullness, in heaven right now. And one day we will share that same type of glory in our own body. And so, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are very clear that Christ is man, the fullness of it. In fact, I would push to say you cannot make Jesus too human. This is helpful. This is helpful. Because I think sometimes we have this tendency. We think of Jesus even lying in the manger. We can't think of him having dirty diapers or, or crying or weeping or, or, or walking around or any of those things. That's too lowly of the Son of God. No, he had a full human existence. Struggled. Suffered. Had pain and agony just like you did. You cannot make Jesus too human. 
I do want to warn us that we can have errors when it comes to his humanity, but you cannot treat him as too human. What, what kind of errors could we have? Well, the first would be to deny his humanity all out. And I hope you see, even from the, the scriptures that I've quoted today, that clearly he is human. He has a human nature, a human soul, a human intellect. He is fully human. So maybe perhaps we wouldn't deny his humanity, but we also cannot say he's only human. We'll look at this next week. He is fully God as well. And so we can't follow, fall into either ditch. Nor can we add anything to him that's not necessary to be human. What do I mean by that? Sin and all of its fruits do not make us human, brothers and sisters. When Adam was in the garden, he was human before he sinned. Sin is actually us being dehumanized. It's actually being us less than the fullness of humanity. The fact that we taste death is proof that we're actually, I hate to borrow words, we're devolving. We're we're tasting less than the fullness of what it is to be human. Jesus didn't have sin, nor would he have died. Because he wasn't a sinner. And yet... And yet he was fully human. Why then is this important? Why then is it important that we focus on his humanity? Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, that Christ is more human than any man ever has been. Even more than Adam. Now, what I don't mean is he's not a superhuman. Right? Like, don't, don't put a, a cape on him and throw him in tights and expect him like, to fly around or something like that. That's not what I mean. But in everything that man should be, everything that Adam should have been, Christ is and more. I'm going to read Romans 5, 12 through 21. When I'm doing this, I want you to hear something very specific. I want you to hear Adam and see what, what all comes with Adam, but then see how the Scriptures talk about Christ being better, bigger, more full than Adam, and as a result, everything that comes from him is better and more full. Romans 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. You hear what he's saying is, here's Adam, he represents humanity, he sins, he falls, we all go with him. We all go with Adam. We're all condemned with his guilt, and we all inherit his, his sinful nature. This is terrible. Brothers and sisters, his, his one sin brings a, a, a plethora of wrath and evil. But then look what he says. Look what what Paul says. The Holy Spirit inspires. There's a type of the one to come. Adam wasn't the fullness. Jesus is the fullness. And here's, here's what the fullness is. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, Adam's, much more, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. It's not like Adam's. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man Adam's trespasses, death reigned through that one man, how terrible, how awful, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ was more human and brought more blessing than Adam ever could. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see that? 
Adam had life. He was human. He had the power to choose death. But Jesus is the greater human, the fullness of humanity, who offers not just physical life, but eternal life. This is why this matters, that Christ is a human. The fullness of human. The absolute human. Because every blessing that's ours must pass through His humanity. He must be. We need it. His humanity gives us assurance that we can look to Him as well as an example for life. Ephesians 4.20. Listen to this. Now, he's not just the fullness of life, but now He's the fullness of humanity that we can look to, that we can see. But that is not the way you learn Christ. So look at, how do we learn Christ? Assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. He's saying, stop being like Adam. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. What's the new self? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You know what that likeness is? It's Christ. Adam had the image of God. Christ has the fullness of the image of God. And that is what we're being made new into. His humanity matters. As the fullness of humanity, Christ also could be and is and did all that we should have done and been. It's only because He's fully human that He can be our substitute. Psalm 49, 7-9 Truly no man can ransom another. Or give the God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You see, sinful man can't pay for each other. We can't even pay for ourselves. We needed a spotless human sacrifice, the fullness of humanity, in order to offer himself up. And because of this humanity, I want you to see this. This is maybe the the pinnacle of what I'm trying to to get across. Because he's the fullness of humanity, you know what he can do? He can relate to us and now represent us to God. (laughs) You see, we couldn't come near him. Our sin made it impossibly so. But kind of like a, a diplomat from a country might go and approach a king, We needed a full human representative in the throne room of God to cry out for mercy for us. And it couldn't have come, it couldn't have come from sinful flesh. He had to be fully human and yet free of sin. And so Christ, his true humanity, his true humanity, he belongs to the family of men. And he can be an older brother to us, a a near kin by faith, who then can redeem us and protect us and love us and relate to us. And if we stop for a moment, isn't that a marvelous thing? Isn't it marvelous that God himself, not a creature, separate from all creation, would come down and take to himself a creaturely body and a creaturely soul to be with us lowly creatures? Does, Does that not... Does that, does that that boggle your mind? Doesn't, doesn't, that, doesn't that make you just drop in awe? Your heart just, just overflow with, how could this be? And yet it's true. So let's turn to the second point, the son who is our older brother. Let's see how we can draw on this. If he is, if he is the true son of God... And God is going to adopt sons and daughters. It must be through Christ into this family. And His human nature makes that possible. And maybe you've even seen, as I've pointed out, the proofs for His humanity. Maybe you see where the Bible is really kind of trying to edge us along by proving His humanity. Which is this, that the very proofs that the Scripture gives us that Christ is fully human have the purpose of more than just communicating facts about Jesus. John 17, 3 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. And this is eternal life that you know, you, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, um, Jesus is communicating that salvation is partly knowledge. You have to know facts. You have to know true things about God the Father and Jesus Christ. You have to know the gospel. But it's much more than that, brothers and sisters. This is the same knowing 
of Adam knowing Eve, a husband knowing the wife. This is, this is a deep intimacy. We have to be intimate with God our Father and intimate with our Son. And that comes, that comes through an experiential knowledge. It comes through knowing Christ as human and experiencing the fullness of His humanity. What do I mean? What do I mean? Hebrews 2.14, again, right? Since therefore the children share in the same flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, right? He's partaking of the same things. What's going on? Well, he had to ripen in life. I've already said that, right? He had to grow up. He had to learn. You know, that, that means he actually had to learn how to be a carpenter. He had, he had, he had to learn how to have a job. My, my youngest, or my oldest son, my oldest son in many ways has inherited... Um, much of my flaws. He's a, he's a perfectionist. Um, that's, a, that's a nice way of saying um, self-righteous, but he's a perfectionist. And, and when my wife is trying to teach him math, he struggles. It's hard for him. And when he can't do it well, he gets angry. He throws up his hands and says, what's the purpose? What's the point? And kind of, kind of moves on with life. You realize that, that Jesus was tempted with those same struggles. That he had to go into the workshop every day, probably with his dad, and hold a mallet and a chisel and learn how to scrape wood away and make, make chairs and tables and all those other things. Because he's fully human, he can relate to us having to learn. The scriptures, maybe, maybe some of you struggle this way. You're going to start in January and you're going to have a plan to read the Bible through the year and memorize the scriptures and store them up in your heart. And you're going to get in two or three weeks and maybe get to Leviticus or maybe to a longer verse that you're trying to memorize. And it's just going to be so hard that you're going to give up. You realize that that Jesus had to read the Torah himself? That he had to go in the synagogue and and hear, hear the rabbi teach? He actually had to learn by the power of the Holy Spirit what his role was as Messiah from the scrolls. He knows what it's like for us, brothers and sisters, to come to the Word and be tempted to neglect it. To to be tempted to to, to not put in the effort. To be tempted not to to learn it and to to pay attention to it. To not see everything that we want to see in it. To, to, to not always have all the fruit that we want from it. He knows, he knows those temptations. He never sinned. He never neglected it. Don't get me wrong. But he knows what it's like to have to do that. I hope children, you especially, will take heart as, as your parents are trying to rub scriptures in and, 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 and do those memorizing verses and, and all those things. The Lord Jesus, as a young man, had to do the same things. He had to do the same things. So he knows those struggles. Jesus had to deal with bodily limitations, right? I already said that. You know, men, when you go home at the end of a tired day and, and, you, and you're sitting in the car, maybe even with tears in your eyes, how am I going to go in the house, which is probably so full of chaos? How am I going to go in the house and love my wife and my, my children when my day was as hard and as draining as it was? You realize Jesus worked hard and stayed up late doing everything that the Father called him to do. All of it. He didn't leave one task neglected. And he was weary and tired and then yet had to get up early the next morning to pray and to start his day again without all the sleep that he wanted, with all the rest that he thought he might need. And yet, and yet he did it. He knew the temptation of not being able to minister to all the souls that, he, that needed attention. He couldn't be everywhere all at once. He couldn't put his hands on all the problems. He couldn't fix them all. He had that same temptation you and I do. Of, of trying to work everything out. And yet, he trusted his father. He couldn't even give his disciples, the ones who were at his feet, all the individualistic time that they wanted. Can you imagine how often Peter and Paul and James and Andrew are trying to pull at him? Can I just get a couple of minutes? Can you explain that to me? Can you help me? Can you help help me see what it is God is doing? So Jesus knows what it's like to feel worn down. To be 
tempted to believe that the problem is, is not enough hours in the day or a schedule that's too crowded to get anything or everything done. And he knows what it is to suffer in the flesh. We read Isaiah 53 this morning. The Lord Jesus knows what it's like to suffer bodily pain. He knows excruciating pain. That word comes from to bear a cross. The Romans invented a word for how painful the cross is. If there's anybody who knows your physical pain, especially us who are getting older, my knees start to hurt in the mornings. I have no idea why. But it's just something that happens with age. You know what? The Lord Jesus Christ knows what it is to deal with bodily pain. And he knows to do what it is to deal with, with emotional and mental anguish. We're going to look at, in a moment, him on the cross and all that was coming at him. The Lord Jesus can, can relate to you, mother who is overwhelmed with disobedient children. You, you who are, are just so overwhelmed with all the work in your life. Jesus can do this because he was human. Because he is human. So he was ripened in life. He was reliant. Here's the thing is, do you realize that Jesus, we don't, we don't think of this. Jesus in his humanity had to trust the Father for his daily bread. We don't think about this, right? Like, just think of Jesus walking along, and we think of like even the feeding of the 5,000. Like, everywhere Jesus went, like he just touched things, and then there was food. That's not how it worked. The fact that they, the miracles were listed there was because they were extraordinary. Everywhere Jesus went, this is what he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had to trust that the Father would provide food and shelter for him every day. Some of us are going through real hard economic times right now, and you're wondering... Can I make the bills? You know what? Jesus was tempted to believe that God would not provide for him. He can sympathize. Jesus had to live by faith. And here's, here's the one, perhaps, that's... I, I, don't like, I, don't, I don't want to be controversial, but I think this is so helpful because so, so many times... As a, as, a, as a pastor, I want to come along and, and you have difficult things going on in your life. Very difficult. Things that seem so very complex. And what we call you to is faith and repentance. And you go, well, that's nice. That's, but how does that fix my life? You, you realize that same struggle that you have to believe that faith and repentance is what you need to get through the struggles of your life. Jesus faced the same thing. What do I mean? First, John 20, 17. Jesus is resurrected from the garden. You know what he says to Mary Magdalene? I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Now, that phrase sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? What do you mean, my God, Jesus? Aren't you God? He had a full human experience, which meant he was a worshiper. And who would he worship other than the one true living God in his humanity? Well, then, that helps us then make sense of what happens at the cross, doesn't it? Matthew 27, 46, most of you will know it. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, many of us think that that's, that's Jesus crying out and believing that the Father left the Son. You realize that's not what Jesus is saying at all? We, we read Psalm, Psalm 22 this morning. That's what Jesus is quoting. That is actually a declaration by Jesus, that he is trusting the Father, and the Father will not abandon him. What do I mean? I'm going to read you parts of that psalm. Listen to what it says. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. You know what Jesus is saying? He is struggling on the cross. He can barely get any breath out. He can't quote the whole psalm, but he's saying to his heart, I have a Father in heaven who is faithful who has never abandoned his people, and he will not abandon me. That same struggle that you have to believe that God is for you, Jesus was tempted to doubt. And you know what? He overcame that temptation by turning to the Scriptures and proclaiming the truth that they trusted you and were not put to shame. And so I will trust you and not be put to shame. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see, he's surrounded by people who are mocking his faith. 
Where is your God? If He's so big and powerful, why doesn't He take you off the cross? Why doesn't He make your life easy, Jesus? Why doesn't He just hand you the kingdom? And Jesus is having to to look at those people who are trying to stir Him, who are trying to shake Him, and say, no, my Father in heaven is true, and you are liars. He's having that same struggle that every one of you Myself included will have this Christmas when the whole world is shouting at you and saying, what you need is bigger toys and bigger boats and bigger games. You need more family time. You need more food. The reality is what you need is Christ Jesus. You need the fullness of Him. And you need to love His humanity because in here He knows exactly what it is to be tempted to give up on the Father. And He overcame. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You see? Jesus knew what it was like to look around and go, there's no other deliverer other than God. And he had to believe that. He had to believe he couldn't be delivered by a doctor. He couldn't be delivered by a a political figure taking him off the cross. The only deliverance he had was going to be his father, and he had to trust him implicitly, completely, and know that as he was crying out, God the Father would hear his son. How many of you have prayed over and over again in your sorrow, and in your sadness, in your worries, in your anxieties, and God, does he hear Christ was tempted the same way, but trusted the Father. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You know who Christ is talking about here in the psalm? Satan, that roaring lion. What did Satan plan to do the entire time? Get him on that cross. Let's let him die. Let me keep him in Sheol. Let me bog him down. Let me me ruin the plan of God. And here on the cross, Jesus is having to believe in incredible agony that the Father's plan to overcome the evil one was through this absolute terror and horror. You ever feel oppressed by the evil one? I do. Christ stood up. And believed the Father. The last one. You can go through Psalm 22 today. Look at all the ways that Jesus is having to have faith in God. But here's what he says. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. You know what he had to trust? That God was going to promise on his, was going to deliver on the promise of resurrecting him. Read Psalm 16. You will not let your Holy One undergo decay. As he's on the cross, he has to believe that one day he's going to be alive and stand in the presence of God's people and proclaim praise. And not just that, he had to believe that his sacrifice on the cross was going to get him the reward that the Father promised, a people for his own possession, this congregation that would be around him forever. You see, Christ faced the same need for faith, the same temptations, the same difficulties, all without sin, yes, but that he did this so that he could be a better brother to us, a a sympathetic one who knew exactly what it is to suffer and have sorrow and temptation. He also had to live by prayer. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus was dependent on prayer. How many times do we see him on his knees early in the morning, late at night. And he knew the weariness of it. He knew what it was to to cry out over and over again and not think you heard from heaven. In fact, he, he knew the cost of it. When he's sitting on the mountain and he's praying for his disciples and they're out on the sea and they're rowing against the storm, Do you not think that the Savior's heart wanted nothing more but to run out to them and deliver them from the storm? 
He loved his disciples. And yet he continued to pray. Why? Because he knew calling out to his Father was better than even giving his presence to his disciples. He knew the cost of having to pray. And he knew the, jo- the joys and delights of, of that fellowship with his Father. Brothers and sisters, if you grow weary of prayer, Jesus knows what that's like. He also knows what it, had, what it was like to walk in the Spirit. Some of us think that Jesus, Jesus was a cheat. I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, but we think Jesus was kind of going around his ministry, and whenever he needed to do something, he'd kind of like reach into his divine side and go, ah, there we go, miracle, right? You realize that Jesus in his humanity didn't reach into his divinity at all. All the miracles that happened were not him reaching in his divinity. The the transfiguration on the mount, that wasn't you seeing his divine side. No, the scriptures are very clear. From the moment he started his ministry, he was empowered by the Holy Spirit who came down upon him. All of the miracles he did were the miracles wrought by the Holy Spirit. The places he go was directed by the Holy Spirit. The things he did was in submission to the Holy Spirit, just like you and I have to do. Do you see what I'm trying to do? I'm trying to show you how human Jesus was so that you can see how relatable he is to us. Even in his relationships. Oh, Christmas is around the corner. And... So many of us are dreading family gatherings. You realize that Jesus dealt with strangers and and, and had to have hard conversations with them? Simon the Pharisee, he probably didn't know Simon the Pharisee very well. He's in his home, and he has to look at Simon and say, Hey, Simon, you didn't wash my feet, you didn't kiss me, but that, that prostitute over there, the one you keep calling a whore, yeah, she did. Isn't that kind of an awkward conversation? Or the woman at the well... The woman who, every time Jesus is trying to talk about spiritual things and, and, and try to deliver the gospel to her, what's she trying to do? Well, you know, the Jews say this. Oh, over here. Like, and, and he's having to fight hard to get her on target. You ever witness to somebody and have them do that? Jesus knows what that's like. How about awkward dinner conversations? Here, here's, here's something Jesus said in the presence of his own family. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Don't you think that when he got home, Mary might have had a thing or two to say to him? To Jesus, Jesus had family relations that were difficult. How about his brothers? Hey, Jesus, why don't you go up to the, go up to the feast? Show everybody that you're the teacher. Not quite sure whether that he was mock, the brothers were mocking him or they really wanted to be able to say, we're the brothers of the famous one. But either one, he had even siblings that antagonized him. Well, maybe you think, yeah, yeah, but he doesn't have to deal with sinners in the church. You, you realize Jesus had disciples who fell asleep on him in the moment of most urgent need couldn't even pray his one of the people who claimed to be his very closest associates would stab him in the back three times and christ would have to forgive him just like you and me he had to deal with broken and sinful people who made life hard and difficult and awkward he can relate to you brothers and sisters He experienced the same things that we did. Temptation. Directly from Satan. You know what Satan did? He shows up and he offers him good things. The kingdom and worship and power. All with a little hook in them. Jesus had to have discernment. He had to know how to say no. He he walked in a sinful world. Do you realize when he was walking around Jerusalem, there were probably brothels. There were probably all kinds of lewd things. There, were, there was the world shouting at him to give his heart to anything and everything other than God, just like it happens to us. And he had to be around sinful people who were constantly tempting him. What, what did Peter say? Hey, Jesus, um, you can't die on the cross. Got to give up that plan, Jesus. Go this way. And yet he had to keep loving them. He experienced death. So many of you... I've even done funerals for some of you this this last year. 
you've lost people that you loved. So did Jesus when he had to see Lazarus in the tomb. And you say, well, okay, yeah, maybe he knew that. He did cry over it. But he brought Lazarus back to life. You realize Jesus in his humanity is in heaven right now, and his, his brothers and sisters, the people he loved, the church, is constantly dying. You realize that, right? That he knows every single saint that dies that's precious to him. In fact, he also tasted death himself. So that some of us who are, maybe we have terminal diagnosis. Some of us are, are facing old age and we know, we know what's coming over that horizon. Death, death's coming and you know what? He can sympathize. So what's the application of all this? So I can wrap this up for you. I want to give you things that you can meditate on. That's this whole sermon. I wanted to give you thoughts to meditate on. To grow your love and thankfulness for Christ. To carry you through hard days that you would love your Lord and desire Him. And so let's, let's, let's do that. Let's end that way. Because, brothers and sisters, it's not nothing to think rightly of our Savior and to rejoice. That's not nothing. Because of His humanity... Why don't you meditate on the fact that Christ is able to bring many sons to glory? That's Hebrews 2.10. Because he's the perfect representation of humanity, he could redeem us. As the early church says, that which he does not assume, he cannot redeem. He becomes the fullness of humanity, that he can redeem us. It's through his humanity that he could offer a perfect sacrifice. Meditate on that. Be thankful for his humanity. Because of his humanity, he could taste death so that he might destroy the devil and death. That's Hebrews 2.14. Man fell down at Satan's feet and worshipped. And so a man would have to come up and overcome the evil one. Christ was that man. He's come in his humanity to secure help for mankind. That's Hebrews 2.16. What do I mean? Because he's fully human, he could represent us before God. Just like a diplomat going before a king, because he was sinless and yet fully human, he could go into the courtroom of God and say, look at these people that I represent. Oh Lord, save them. Deliver them. He could secure the help of being an example for us in life of faith. Because he lived the perfect human life, he showed us that we can be obedient, that we can love the Lord, that we can overcome. But, but this example isn't, isn't like a distant one. It's not like this high bar that none of us can jump. No, he knows exactly how you feel and where you are. And here's the greatest help he does, he sends. You might, this might be low in your eyes, brothers and sisters. I would challenge you to think otherwise. Because of his humanity... And knowing what it is to suffer and to be tempted, he can perfectly pray for you to the Father. And he can send his spirit to you, the same spirit that helped him overcome. That's not a small thing. Oh, how precious his humanity. In his humanity, he can speak to us as a prophet. You understand, God can speak to us, and he does. But what about a prophet who knows us and, and can tenderly come along and say, here's sin and reveal it, but also here's life. A prophet who knows us, a priest who knows us, not just so he can give himself, but also who can pray fervently for us. A, a king who's not a hard-hearted despot, but one who knows our frailties and our weakness and, and will woo us and protect us because he knows all of our weaknesses. Here's what I want to leave you with. Christ's humanity ultimately leads us to stop looking at ourselves and to fix our eyes firmly on Him. For you and I, brothers and sisters, cannot want God enough. But Christ has shown perfect love and zeal for our Heavenly Father on our behalf. Because of His humanity. You know what? You and I, we can't obey God enough to earn His love and favor, but Christ has actively in His humanity obeyed in all things that we could be brought near to God. 
We can't pay God enough for our sins, but Christ has suffered in His flesh for us that we might be freed from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin. We can't be sincere enough for God. But Christ has never been anything but wholly honest and dependent on God on our account. We can't feel enough affection and thanksgiving in response to our gracious God, but Christ is our thanksgiving offering and the joy of our heart. We can't express our needs and our aches fully and succinctly to our Father, but Christ knows every temptation and tribulation that He can rightly plead on our behalf. And our Savior's humanity is the place where God meets our fallen race with everything we could ever need or require. Let us pray.